Here for part two of his lecture in truth and science is Dr. John Patrick. First, my apologies for the late start. Um, my hosts, I, I don't stay in hotels whenever possible. Uh, one night in 10 in a hotel. Is that better? Sorry. First, my apologies for the late start. I don't stay in hotels whenever possible. Um, I stay with families because it's more fun. And my family uh, hosts this time, we were talking and we didn't notice the time. I should probably tell you what we were talking about, but let me just lubricate myself. And I also need that we start with prayer. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the wonderful fact of your family, that wherever we go in the world, we've got family members right there. We thank you for that. Help us to use it better. Help us to show the world that they lost something important. And be with us now as we try to think about one aspect of our world that we're not handling well. In Christ's name. Amen. My, uh, my wife's question when I get home is often this one. She says, um, well, what was it this time? And what she means by that is, where did you stay? Tell me about it. Sometimes I stay with a Catholic who was a Protestant. Other times I stay with a Protestant who was a Catholic. They're the main groups. Um, the movement that's going on, which is huge, is very interesting. I was talking to Father Malone and said, the only trouble with this movement is the Catholics are winning on the deal. When I stay with a Catholic who's now Protestant, invariably he had a priest who didn't actually believe in transcendence and didn't believe that you could meet Jesus. Um, it was total liberal. He was more secular than Christian. So naturally, if you're blessed or not blessed with a priest like that, your life gets into trouble. It falls apart. And then they meet some woolly Pentecostal who gives them a big hug and says, you have to meet Jesus, and they do, and their life straightens out. It's very hard for them to forgive the Catholic Church for keeping that secret. John Paul and Benedict both knew about this. I mean, John Paul never talked to a youth meeting without ending. Having done the Catholic bit, he said, the bottom line is you must have a meeting with Jesus. And that's got lost in many places. The other way around... I lose a friend to the Catholic Church. I have to put it that way because that's how it feels regularly. But they come from the intellectual end of the spectrum, almost invariably. And what they cannot stand is another seeker-friendly Sunday. And at least when the Mass is done reasonably well, the sense of the mystery of God is there. And as one of my friends put it the other day, I said, well, how are you doing since your con conversion to the Catholics? He said, I love the anonymity. Nobody knows who I am, and the homily is mercifully short. But he's got the magisterium. I, as you can imagine, I get lots of emails asking me questions I can't possibly answer. I am twice as likely to forward that email to a Catholic as a Protestant. But I will have the answer in 24 hours, if the answer is known. We Largely, I think, on this continent, due to Richard John Newhouse and First Things, um, every uh, academic Christian can find any other academic Christian in America in less than 24 hours. It is an astonishing world. I remember when, this is not the talk for today, but it's somewhat encouraging and it's important to be encouraged. I remember a few years ago when I came across that sociological stuff about everybody being connected to everybody else by seven handshakes. And I thought, ah, it can't really be true. It's a nice, nice idea. I was at a conference when I stumbled on this stuff. And uh, so I thought, I'm, I'm a scientist. I do experiments. So I said, let's try it. It's, it. George Bush was president at the time. So I said, let's see how many handshakes it takes me to get to George Bush and the Pope. That would, that would be a re reasonable test. To my astonishment, I, I sat down and I realized... Without talking to anybody, I was only two handshakes from the Pope. Because I'd done quite a lot of public policy speaking with a guy called Ian Benson, who's currently a Catholic lawyer, who's currently behaving badly. I'm, I'm praying for him to get his act together again. But he, was, he knew Richard John Newhouse uh, quite well. And of course, Newhouse had dinner with the Pope every time he went to Rome. So for a serious question, I was two handshakes from the Pope. George Bush, I thought, well, this is going to be different because I'm an academic. I, when, I, when 
Bush became president like every other academic, I was brainwashed to think he was utterly stupid, uh, which wasn't true. Um, but uh, I didn't make any progress at all in that sitting at my table, but I, I just walked across the hall and I ran into a friend called Joe McElhaney. And uh, I said, oh, Joe, I'm trying an interesting experiment. And he listened. He said, well, you've solved it. You have one handshake to George Bush. I went to school with him. <laughs> and it is like that. We are so, so connected. And you, we, we need to use it more. I tell medical students when they finish training, don't ever, when you go looking for a job, stay in a hotel. Don't do that. Call me. I can get you somebody in any hospital in this country within less than a day who will gladly take you in. We like doing it. Uh, I meet people now who, uh, they come up and they know me, uh, and sometimes it looks as though they know me a bit better than I could imagine. And, and then uh, one of them not so long ago, uh, she smiled and she said, well, I did stay in your house for a week once, you know. <laughs> I couldn't remember. <laughs> but that's as it should be. My children's life was so blessed by the people who came through our doors. And I think evangelism is best going to be achieved by hospitality in, in the next little while. We must become, we are friendly, but we must become hospitable. Uh, you have been given your home to use. Uh, we once did a, a late, when my kids were in their teens, we, we kept a record for a week of how many people came to the house. Because it, we lived right downtown at that time, and we'd never been vandalized, we'd never been burgled, but virtually everybody else had. At the end of the week, we knew why. About 35 people came through the door, uh, different people during the week, and they ranged from a punk rocker to a professor. Um, I mean, anybody casing the joint would give up. Uh, it wasn't worth the issue. We didn't need to lock the door, really. We don't lock our door on the farm now anyway. And my brother-in-law doesn't even know where the key of his house is. Uh, and they're about to sell it, and the agent came and said, uh, have you got any keys? He said, well, somewhere. <laughs> That's as Christians should be. And it's wonderful. I, I have those sorts of things happening to me all the while now. Just to give you a sense of how amazing it can be, how good God can be, about... 18 months ago, uh, I was visiting my daughter with my wife uh, in who runs an orphanage in Malawi, the one with 80 grandchildren, has given me 80 grandchildren. She's adopted these three kids legally. And uh, I'm getting old now, so I have aches and pains, and long flights are not my favorite way of living. And then Sally had booked a lot of work in South Africa. Um, so I was a bit curmudgeonly. And we went to the airport in Malawi, Blantyre, and... Uh, the airport was built when the biggest plane was a DC-3. Um, the planes have got bigger, but the airport hasn't. So there aren't enough seats when you get through their laughable security. And so to add to my woes, I was standing, not sitting, in the waiting area. But the guy next to Sally had put a bag on the seat, and he was reading a Kindle. And after a few minutes, I said, Sir, is anyone coming for that seat? And he looked up and said, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Please, sit down. So I sat down. And to make him feel a little better, I said, um, I don't notice what's going on around me either when I'm reading my Kindle. And he looked up again. He said, Have we met? And I said, Two white guys in the middle of Africa. Not very likely. And uh, he said, I don't recognize you. I recognize your voice. And then he thought again. He said, you gave some lectures in Cape Town in 1999, didn't you? I said, somewhere around there. And he said, Ben Gaunt brought you there. I said, I remember Ben. He said, I was a medical student at the time. I didn't actually hear the lectures, which is why I don't recognize you. I was on an elective. But when I came back, Ben had recorded the talks you gave, and he gave me a set of tapes. He said, I wore them out. We live in England now because we had a bit too much violence in South Africa and my wife needed a break. But the best two weeks of my year are the two weeks I spend helping at a mission hospital in Malawi. And if I hadn't met you on tape, I would never even have thought of doing that. What do you say when that happens to you? I was being a bit of a curmudgeon, basically. It was a rap over the knuckles telling me, you are amongst the most privileged men on earth. Now, be more grateful. I am. Uh, I have an incredibly privileged life at this stage. 
but it's meant to be for all of us. But you have to take some risks. Now, back to the science. I went to university, turned into a reductionist, which I hope you will be able to define for your children. Within weeks, I didn't refer to the patient. I referred to the gallbladder in the sixth bed, if you see what I mean. That's reductionism. Um, I was fascinated by applied science. Uh, I always had been, and that became more and more. I was good at it, and down the road I went. Uh, the, the worst thing uh, that was going to for the first five years in university, uh, I actually went to church and heard the two men. I had a choice on Sunday because I'm a Protestant, and the sermon matters. Not mercifully short, but hopefully worthwhile. Um, and my choice on Sunday was between two preachers, a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor before he became a, a preacher, in Westminster Chapel, midway between Westminster Abbey and Buckingham Palace. One of the most brilliant men I've ever come across in my life. And man, could he preach. He was Welsh. His, his sermons lasted, if 50 minutes would be short, and you could hear a pin drop. I can still remember some of those sermons virtually verbatim. And occasions on this continent, for instance, that focus on the family on one occasion, as I went out of a a session, a guy tapped me on the shoulder and I looked around and he said, thank you, just like being back in the chapel. He, he recognized the way I do things, the influences. The other one was John Stott, who if you, haven't, if you want to evangelize in your church, his little basic Christianity book is a classic. Uh, just a little book. Again, a brilliant man. And one of those people who are holy, just to look at, you know, he seemed to radiate peace. I mean, he used to say good morning to the Holy Trinity every day when he woke up, I think. You know, that's the way it was. Uh, and I, his sermons also, he was an Anglican, so the sermons are a bit shorter, but they're so beautifully constructed. Whereas we don't even learn to read the scriptures properly. Uh, about mm, 25 years ago now, I realized that my problem as a professor was to teach students to read. They can't read. Well, you can't, probably, most of you, because no one's taught you. Um, the first thing I do at Augustine College, which came out of these sorts of things, the first exercise every year is to, we have about a dozen students on average. They're all Christian um, pretty well. We've had about three that weren't. One left within a month. Uh, one resisted for a year and became a Christian after that. And the other one was a Christian in six weeks with a no evangelism, just being in the environment. And I say to these students, you've all read Ephesians 1 and 2 many times. Could any of you tell me the argument? None of you can, statistically. That's not acceptable, um, because we can do better than that, a lot better. But you need to go back to what Aquinas would have taken as the norm. I mean, if you were getting your master's degree in the Middle Ages, they didn't want anything about you in your thesis, why would we want to listen to you? You don't have anything to say. You're not educated. So you, what you did for your thesis was read something that everybody agreed was good and then write your version of it as a precy. You don't even teach precies in America anymore, precy writing. But if you want to understand anything, it's the way to do it. I've even been stopped. Well, not stopped because I couldn't be, but I've even been accosted, so to speak, Flying across the Atlantic, it wasn't accosted. I was sitting, flying actually for a Catholic pro-life conference where I was speaking in England. And halfway across the Atlantic, a young woman walks down uh, the plane and as she passes my seat, sitting on an aisle seat, she looks at me for a moment and then moves on. There was, you know, that look, she thinks she knows me. I had no idea who she is. Um... She comes back a few minutes later and she stops and says, you're Professor Patrick, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. Um, she said, do you remember me? <laughs> I said, sorry, no. She laughed. She said, that's all right. I took your course 20 years ago. Thank you. It was the best one I ever took in the science faculty because it was the only one that taught me to think. She said, I'm a professor myself now and I use your methods. But essentially, you took a year off my PhD. Because a scientific PhD will be built around probably only a dozen papers at heart. And what most people do during their PhD work is they read those papers continuously, but lazily. And they never actually 
engage. If you want to engage with a text, you must write it down by hand. Not, not type it, write it by hand. Rewrite it. This, the essence of a praise is simply removing everything that doesn't matter to the essence of the passage you're reading. If you wanted to understand a building, you have to remove all the trimmings to get down to see where the weight-bearing structures are and how the building works, and then you can put it back together again. You should do that with literature. Most scientific papers haven't actually proved what they say they proved. The data is good. The methodology is good. Over time, it works out. But the thought is often not even logical. Logical errors are common in the scientific literature. Uh, so remove all the adjectives and the adverbs, everything inessential. Remove the metaphors and similes. Just put square brackets, title to remind you. Make a complex sentence simple. You can reduce Ephesians 1 and 2 to 25 lines and you will know the argument because it's very crisp. I won't tell you. You Go try it. Next time you hear a passage of scripture read and you know it's important and you don't understand it, write a praise and you will. Uh, so you end up, you can do that for the text. You have to probably take a month to, to, to do a dozen praises of a, a real scientific literature. But now you've written your introduction. When you've got the data and they think they're halfway through, they're not even close. That's a long way off because it's about the mind and the mind has to be trained. And we're not training the mind anymore. University is mainly a, a process of memorize and dump now. Utterly ridiculous. Uh, I realized that 20 years ago. And so I evolved a uh, honors uh, course in biochemistry, which had no requirement for memorization. The exam did last eight hours. And I sorted out those that could think from those that couldn't. Which, after all, when you're doing a fourth-year honors course, you're asking, is this kid someone who should do a master's degree? Or should we tell them, look, we've taken enough money from you, leave the university, don't come near us again, which is what most of them should learn earlier, especially in the arts faculty. That worked beautifully, uh, and it changed the way I think. It changed my own way of doing things. And we need to, to rebuild the Christian mind because it's largely missing. Most evangelicals go to church on Sunday, and they think Romans 12.2 runs roughly like this. Paul says, if you've followed my argument, then you ought not to be like the people around you. You need to be transformed, renewed by the renewal of your feelings. So only a few of you know what I've just done to you. All I've done is trash the intellectual history of the Western world in one sentence, and you don't seem to care. It's your mind that you're responsible for, not your feelings. Don't go to church to feel better. In fact, if your priest or pastor is any good, you'll feel terrible at the end. Because what he will have done is shown you the bit of your life that God is currently saying to you, I'm going to have that bit. Jordan Peterson thinks he's giving us two choices all the while. Have you noticed? They're both bad. He's not yet a Christian at one level. But God is going to make something out of you. You can come easy or you can come hard. But you'll come if you've taken step one. And we need to recognize that. The Christian idea of love is not a feeling, is it? If you love me, complete the verse. Keep my commandments. It's so easy, isn't it? Every one of you in this room knows which bit of your life is currently in disobedience and has to come into obedience, and that is love. Nothing else matters. So in my case, having listened to these guys who actually taught me very well, for which I'm very grateful, uh, I lost my way. Uh, I was ambitious. And I knew Gray's elegy, but I didn't take any notice of that amazing line, let not ambition mock their useful toil, their homely joys. He can do that. Fortunately, I was smart enough that God had made me to be a professor. I'm not, I'm not fit for anything else. Uh, a bit like Lewis in that respect. Uh, but I, I went the academic route because there was nothing else doing. In fact, I didn't intend to do that. As I told you yesterday, I played truant from medical school a great deal. Um, but my boss in internal medicine was a marvelous guy uh, who took, whenever he had the chance, if he saw a bright working class kid, he wanted him as his resident. Because he said, you guys are going to have interesting careers. And he wanted to see that we had the careers. We didn't waste our lives. And uh, when I finished with him, he said, what are you doing next? I said, well, I I'm, just, I'm just about to sign up to become a ship's stock and go around the world. He looked at me and said, no, you are not. These were paternalistic days, thank God. He said, I will change that. You will go to Oxford 
and do neurology. I think that would be the next step for you. So I went to Oxford and did neurology. And then went from one specialty to the next after that until I found out what needed to happen. Uh, in fact, the next thing I needed to do was get married. And just in time, the nick of time before I lost my way entirely, my wife, who I'd known on and off for seven years, turned up and rescued me. Uh, I know no one else in the world has gone to their wedding not knowing there was going to be a sermon and certainly not prepared for the text. Uh, a lovely priest looked at me as he read the text. No man setting out to build a tower doesn't first find out whether he's got enough bricks. And basically he was saying to me, and I understood what he was saying, I don't think you've got enough bricks for this project called marriage. And I knew he was right. And that took me back to church because that was the only way it would survive. I had uneducated parents who knew that. So I thought about my parents and I realized I was not fit to raise a child like my parents had raised me. I might be very well educated, but I was not fit to be a good parent. And it takes years to recover from your mistakes because the world is morally consequential, isn't it? Nobody gets away with anything. You live with what you have done. The only good that you can do with that is to give it back. Because when you become a genuine Christian, the one thing Christ takes from you is your sins. They now belong to him, not you. Therefore, he has the right to use them at will. Be prepared for that. It's embarrassing, it's painful, and it's wonderful. I was never bothered by any temptation to get drunk or uh, drugs. I didn't see my first drug addict until I was 26. There was no drug addiction in, in, in Britain until after the 60s. That's when it started for us. And I got drunk once in my life and never again. Now, the one thing that God gave me that I really like is my mind. I'm not going to switch it off again willingly. Um, but women, that was a different matter. We all have our problems. You have to share it. The first time I shared it, within a week, somebody knocked on the door and said, I think you might be able to help me. And I was. Your sins can be used to help other people. And then it's guaranteed that there's no pride involved. If you feel called to help people with problems you have never struggled with, deal with your first problem. It's called hypocrisy. And there are lots of hypocrites around, and you're obviously one of them, so now go and help the, the hypocrites. So these things were moving me on slowly. And we got married. We weren't going to have children, but we were careless, so shortly we had three. Uh, Sally, who was going to have a world, uh, life in international politics, she thought, found that she liked children very much indeed. Uh, but uh, she said, I need you around a bit more. If the women met my wife, they would be uh, amazed. Uh, usually it takes a little while. Uh, if, you, if you're a, a yuppie and you've had a, a late child that you think is made of Dresden, China, and my wife picks your child up, it might be a minute or two before you realize that she's only got one functional arm, and yet your baby is on her shoulder and she's talking to it. You can think about that for a while. Um, many doctors don't even notice that she has only one functional arm. She manages it so well. And six, sometimes it's the second or third time they meet her, and they feel so embarrassed that they didn't even pick up a lower motor neuron lesion. <laughs> but that's one of the things that attracted me was her courage. She was beautiful too, but it was the courage that mattered most. I knew with this woman I was not going to have an uninteresting life. And I think that's why she married me too. We were both a bit on the wild side. So I did a PhD to see my children because I was going out before they were awake and coming back after they were asleep far too often. And she said, I need your animal. And so I indulged my love of science and that's what I wanted to pick up from yesterday. I got to the point, I hope, where you understand that science is a reductive process. You take the world as you see it and you see how much you can strip away and get some kernel of meaning out that's left there. But you shouldn't confuse that with being the total experience. Uh, people like Dawkins, who says that science is uh, in principle capable of explaining everything, well, they've changed the meaning of explanation. That's the problem. Basically, we had to get rid of Aristotle because he wrecked science, basically, for 1,500 years, and Galen did the same for medicine. And, uh, you know, there's a very good book published in the last year or two called Bad Medicine, Doctors Doing Harm Since Hippocrates. Until about 1860, those who went to a doctor died earlier than those who didn't. 
Um, it's a book by David Wooden, well worth reading. Uh, Richard Hannam, who wrote one of the best books on medieval science, a, a book called uh, How the Middle Ages Made Science Possible. Uh, I, I picked up David Wooden, but at the end he said, these are some, bo some books you should read. And he said of David Wooden's book, this is probably the best and most important book on the history of medicine ever written. I think he, he might be right. Certainly well worth the study. So, I, in the process of doing the science, I had to start thinking much more carefully about what, what is actually going on. It's not as reductive as we think, especially at the top levels. I mean, up to PhD, and PhD stands for piled higher and deeper, doesn't it, basically? That's, that's what it is. Uh, you get to do science after you've done your PhD. Uh, in my case, I did it first because I got the money for my PhD personally from the MRC, so it was my money, so I could live as I wished during the process. But most real science is not, doesn't work the way you think it does. It's the myth of scientific certainty. Science just gives you new models. That's what we do. We take the old model, we take it to pieces and replace it with a new one. Uh, all that matters to us is that it's the best explanation of the data we can provide at the moment. Newton knew that perfectly well. He said, all I've done is give you a better model. He didn't think that he had described reality. And the really interesting bit about it is that almost all the really important science was intuitively understood before it was scientifically understood. Famously, Einstein, uh, trying to, he had the intuition of his theory, and he was trying to do it scientifically, and there's just too many ways of getting to the end point. It was just landing in a fog and a mist. And then he was talking to someone who said something that triggered it, and off he went. I mean, he wasn't even working in a laboratory. He was a patent clerk. And he wrote three of the most important papers the world has seen in the next little while. But he said, I saw and understood how it worked. But then there was a great deal of work to do, which probably only he could do, to, see, to prove that I was right. In fact, shortly after he published, another man published papers showing that he was wrong experimentally. And Einstein said, no, there's something wrong with his experiments. And there was. But it took about 10 years. For 10 years, Einstein went on with this theory, and more and more people believed him. Although there was published data of the objective variety, so-called, which was actually wrong. The machinery, the equipment he was using wasn't sensitive enough, and he'd calibrated it wrong. There's, there's a lot of bum data out there. You know first. You do the experiment afterwards to find out whether you do really know. Most often, you don't. But that, that intuition is so important. It's another way that God is talking to us, I think. He's saying, look, uh, I'm glad that you're trying to understand my world. But he plays games with us all the while, if we're willing to be played with in a good way. He's not playing like the cat with a mouse. It, it's quite different. It's a sense of humor. I mean, he invented humor, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, just think of the things he's done to us. I'm in a bit of a fey mood, so I, I hope this can be deleted, but I'll risk it anyway. Uh, I, I have uh, uh, a theological thought that uh, is probably I'm going to have to repent of at some stage. But, you know, we all get intimidated by people sometimes, don't we? And I think God understood that was coming, and he gave us a way out. Uh, I think in Genesis 1, that when the Holy Trinity had got to the point of making man, you note that, by the way, man doesn't get a personal accolade that they're good. Two things in Genesis 1 don't get a personal accolade. Uh, and interesting also in that first story, Adam doesn't even speak. That doesn't come to the second story. Um, but male and female he made. And I think what the Holy Trinity did when they, so to speak, looked at one another and said, what have we done when they created us? Because we've been a bit of a disaster in many ways, haven't we? And then they invented sex. Because the problem, they said, is that this creature is going to take himself too seriously. <laughs> and if anybody is intimidating you, you only have to think of them making love and you start laughing. 
I mean, we're totally addicted to the most undignified activity the God ever invented for a human being. It's telling us something, you know, that don't take yourself so seriously and laugh a lot more. The world is a very funny place and we should be laughing a lot more and it's attractive to everyone else. So these, this idea of tacit knowledge is all over the place and it's important we get back to it. To back up a long way, Aristotle and company, it wasn't Aristotle himself, but came up with the four causes. Their idea of an explanation was causal. And say a, a, a material, a formal, efficient, and a final cause, you don't need to remember those words. Just think of a, a statue and you can get it. A statue is made out of something. That's the material cause. It's made by someone. That's the efficient cause. But that someone has an idea in their head, the formal cause. We've had shown, I think, here a block of stone that uh, Michelangelo never released the statue from. I think that was shown here. Maybe it was somewhere else in the last week. I don't know. And it was made on purpose, for a purpose. Now, what happened with Francis Bacon is that he said, collect facts, and he changed the meaning of the word fact. Before Bacon, facts, moral facts, were more important and known to be more reliable than physical facts. But what Occam and Descartes and Bacon did was say, collect facts, and they meant physical facts. They took the qualitative world of Aristotle and made it into a quantitative world. If you can't measure it, you're not doing science. And they changed explanation from a causal explanation to a procedural explanation, if you like. We take explanation down another level. We don't actually explain at the end of the day. We have a better understanding that we can use in various ways, and we call that an explanation. We ought to think a bit more carefully about that. This is reductionism. We even do it in the church. Now, the Protestants are much the worst at this. Uh, people go to, to evangelistic crusades, and they hear the gospel preached in a reduced, truncated way, and then... Uh, Billy Graham or someone like that calls them, come and commit your life to Jesus, and they run. A lot of people come, and in that crowd, there will be some for whom there is a turning point in their life. My wife is one such. I mean, you say God doesn't have a sense of humor, and he made sure that my wife had a very, very reduced introduction to the Christian church, but it was real. The day before, she heard, she didn't even go to the crusade, she heard it on a relay in a church. The day before, she'd been disrupting the Christian, the, the scripture class in school. There used to be a, really, a scriptural knowledge course in high school, in our day. And she was disrupting it. And she'd be good at that. She can disrupt anything if she's in the mood. Uh, then she listened to Billy Graham. And she went forward and, you know, they give you this silly little list of things that you tick off and you sign at the bottom. They tell you you're a Christian. Well, it's not because you signed those propositions, because becoming a Christian is not propositional. It's relational. But it had happened. She said the next day she woke up and she wanted to read the Bible. She didn't know why. But suddenly this book had come to life. She wanted to read it. And she didn't want to disrupt the scripture class anymore. She was changed instantly in a way she didn't know. Lewis, who's such a good observer of the human scene, makes this point clearly as well. I mean, he was moved from atheism to theism by rational thought. I think that's even easier to do now. It's, not, it's stupid to be an atheist, in my view. Uh, Pascal's wager is right at that level. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it does make you a theist of some sort. Uh, but then... He was an honest man. He said, okay, if there's a God, I must pray. And you know what happened to him when he prayed? He said, my goodness, I'm a problem. He said, I got down on my knees for the first time in my life to make a thorough examination of myself, and I discovered I was a zoo of ambition, a bedlam of hatred, a harem of fondled hatred. My name was Legion. He discovered sin, which is what happens to you. If you haven't got on your knees and felt bad at, in the process, you haven't been in the presence of God. Did anybody in the Bible meet God and feel good about it on the spot? What's the first thing they felt? I'm about to die, you know. Think of Isaiah, probably the most righteous man in Israel. He said, woe is me. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. That's step one, always. If it doesn't happen, you haven't started. Lewis understood that. He said, I was picked up and carried, kicking and struggling into the kingdom, perhaps the most unhappy man in England that night. He knew that God was God and he was a creature. And it was two or three weeks, and he can't explain the key step. He said, I didn't know what to do with Jesus. And he went with his brother on the motorcycle and watched the wallabies jumping around in the bluebells for a couple of hours at Whipsnade Zoo, came back and he believed that Jesus was the son of God. He doesn't tell us why, because he doesn't know. He simply knows that he now knows this is true. And he spends the rest of his life helping mere mortals like you and me understand our faith better. Tacit knowledge. We can't know God in any inclusive way. He's much bigger than us. In my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. Get used to it. And of course, it's getting easier, isn't it? When you send your children to university, do you know which faculty is the safest one for their faith? I'll tell you, it's not theology. Any ideas? Engage. When you get it wrong in public, it's a 100% learning experience. You, you should never pass it up. Dead right. It's physics. Uh, one quantum physicist not long ago said, if I meet someone who says they're doing quantum physics and not thinking about God, I don't think they're doing quantum physics. Well, I mean, when one particle goes through two holes simultaneously, what's going on? I mean, of course, the problem is it's not a particle, it's not a wave. <laughs> But it behaves like what you're looking for. I mean, this world, as Robert Spitzer should be doing this now, um, he says there's plenty of room for prayer in quantum physics. The world conforms itself to what you're looking for as far as that is possible. It's amazing. Now, where do you think the next place is going to be? Now, this is my opinion. The next place to crack is biology, molecular biology. You can't... They can't resist much longer. It's getting worse and worse and worse for the atheist every day. Because, of course, if Darwin was right, it should get simpler and simpler and simpler. No way. I say I've lived through, through stages, uh, three stages of genetics. I was 13 when they cracked the DNA, got its structure. Um, that's genetic fundamentalism. One gene, one protein, one disease. When I started medicine, cystic fibrosis was one disease. Now it's about 40. There's one bit that's always there, but there's an awful lot that's around it that changes the prognosis. It's important. Uh, not the simple world we thought. So the next step is, of course, the fact that it's not simply gene, protein, result. Mendel was very, very, very lucky. He could have chosen almost any other thing growing in their garden and it wouldn't have dropped out into a simple dominant recessive pattern. Now it's all epigenetic factors. So we've got, I think the last figure I've seen, I, I haven't done any real science for 20 years, um, uh, so I dip every now and again, but I know they've got over 30,000 proteins from a single gene now. That is mind-boggling, isn't it? Utterly mind-boggling. And that's because God loves shape. Uh, way back when I began to be aware of this, some 20 years ago, I was working on one protein. And when you've got a protein, you send it off to the central registry and they put it in the file so that everybody can get at it. But a, a, an interesting phenomenon started to happen. The central piece say, you think you're studying what we call leukocyte endogenous mediator. There's a guy over there studying pyrogen. It's the same gene. Very different functions. What's going on? Well, God loves shape, so you can have the same atomic structure, same molecular structure, but God can twist it into any shape he wants. God does origami in a way we can't even comprehend. Uh, when you think of it, the folding of DNA is one of the, the wonders of the world. Uh, you've got two meters of DNA in every cell in your body and about n trillion cells. I mean, just think of it stretched out. It goes well beyond the moon. And he can fold it up so you can't see it. And the folds matter. You change the electrical field and you change the way it behaves because there'll be a little twist here or there. So you can get 30,000 different proteins from one gene. All the stuff that happens after it comes out. You add the sugar here, a bit of a twist and change. You've got another molecule. It gets even worse. And this bit happened here in Seattle, actually. Um, about 20 years ago, 
we'd got to the point where we could cut up DNA with chemical scissors and get the bits we thought we knew were genes. And they were, because we got the codon for start and we got the codon for stop, so we could find the gene. So you snip it up, stick it in a, a bacterium and get the protein. But every now and again, we got two proteins from a stretch of DNA that looked to us as though you could only hold one. Nobody could answer the question. It was a problem. The guy who got it was here in Seattle, a Christian. And he was sitting in his lab one night after midnight looking at his data. And just like Kepler, who insisted God showed him his laws, he said God showed me what it was. Now, you ought to be literate enough to know this, but I don't know. God uses a four-letter alphabet and only writes three-letter words. You can remember that, can't you? And so the average protein is going to need a thousand letters in the right order. You can hold that in your head. So it's read off in triplets. Let's do it digitally. So it's one, two, three, three, four, five, five, six, seven, and so on. And you, each one of those triplets translates to an amino acid, gets picked up, carried someplace else, and assembled into the protein. This guy saw that actually the three triplets that told you where to start, there was another codon, and it appeared to say, don't start at number one, you can also start at number two. So in the same set of letters, you've got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so on in triplets, and both proteins work. Now, I can't find a human analogy for this. Maybe uh, Dr. Peterson will be able to give me one. Um, I don't know. But... It's rather like, the nearest I can get is, if you could imagine that we had our language written without spaces, well, then you could take a poem, say a Shakespeare sonnet, and every word was a triplet, but you could start at letter one and letter two, and you got two poems, both of which were equally beautiful. We can't imagine that. When, when this guy's sorted it out, he said, I, he told me, he said, I, I sat in the lab for the next two hours enjoying the fact that only I and God knew this. The probability of this happening by chance is well below zero. There is a number for mathematicians that is zero. There's not infinite probabilities that you reach a point. There's a theorem I don't understand, but my son is a mathematician says he's right, that is zero. This is way beyond that. John Lennox, uh, even for the simpler version, says the probability of DNA as we know it, and he didn't even get to the double reading frame at that point. He, he said, he's, and he's a mathematical cosmologist from Oxford. If you've never come across him, go look at him on YouTube. A any of you not know who John Lennox is? Wait, even you? Well, you've got a joy in, 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 to, to, to get to YouTube. You should leave now. I'm not worth listening to, but, <laughs> but you'll enjoy him far more. Um... I met him once, uh, we sat down, he said, well, this is interesting, you're the only other John and Sally we know. So, uh, but he's run be be below the radar for a long while. He went to Cambridge and did the silly thing of telling the dean that the dean was wrong, so he didn't carry on in Cambridge, um, but he, brilliant man. And eventually, he went off to Russia for a bit because he loved languages too. And he knew there was a lot of interesting mathematics going on in Russia that wasn't getting translated. So he actually made his money by translating into uh, English stuff that was trapped in Russia. And when he got Russian sorted out at that level, he, he sort of did German before he got on with his career. And he ends up as a professor of mathematical cosmology at Oxford. Also, came to, comes from the same neck of the woods as C.S. Lewis, has the same sort of Northern Irish combativeness. But when you see him, he looks like everybody's favorite uncle. You know, a bit overweight, tends to wear far from fashionable clothing. Uh, he's very affable, but he has a mind like a razor blade. He's taken Dawkins to pieces twice. Dawkins will never come near him again. I mean, he just took him to pieces. And both of them, I think, are available on YouTube. But... He didn't come up above the radar because he really had a love of Russia and he wanted to be able to go back there, primarily for evangelism, which he's done a lot of. But in the last few years, I was delighted to see him come because a mathematician, DNA, and what's going on in genetics is just, that can't be true. That's not possibly true. I haven't started. It's 10 minutes to go. I'm oh, sorry about that. Uh, I got out of control.
That's not unusual, I'm afraid. Um, but he says the probability of DNA is less, less than one for all the molecules in the cosmos. It's over. This game is over. Real molecular biologists never talk about Darwin. You have to make a little nod in the first paragraph of your grant application, you know, bend the knee like giving a twitch of whatever it is they used to put in the, the chalice for, the, for Caesar. I mean, in those days, uh, non-Christians would take their Christian friends, get them drunk and get them to do it that way. Uh, it's a bit like that. But I don't remember a discussion on Darwin in our Department of Biochemistry in 25 years. We weren't interested. It clearly wasn't adequate to what we were doing. What we were interested in is, you know, how you make your libraries. Why is this not working? What's gone wrong with these cells? Now, I must take the last 10 minutes because I promised to do this and rather jump. There's a, there's a gap here. You can find it in other talks I've given. If you're interested, you can come and talk to me. But the nature of learning and why the Jews are so much more successful at it is important. The Jews win the Nobel Prizes. I don't mean the silly ones like peace. I mean the real ones, biology, uh, biochemistry, molecular biology, medicine. The Jews clean up to a very large degree. 15 million take a lot of them every year. And they themselves are... Intrigued by this. Uh, I think it was about a year ago in the Jerusalem Post, they had an editorial page, an editorial feature on the Nobels were issued, and they said, why did the Jews win? Now, I was brought into this in an interesting way. A God thing happened to me a few years ago. I, I was drawn out of academe to do what I do now uh, around 2000. Uh, so I haven't done any science for 20 years. But... Uh, shortly after 2000, I was amazingly asked to give grand rounds at the University of Chicago. Now, that's a great honor. It's not a little thing. You know, you go for a couple of days, you do rounds, you give lectures, talk to the residents. I thought, this is crazy. I'm well past my sell-by date as a, a trendy scientist. So uh, what's going on? It turned out it was a God thing. The chief resident, and once a year the residents in, in Chicago choose the speaker for grand rounds, was a man called John Yoon. I didn't know, but I had touched his life when he was a medical student. He was Korean, came from a rather naive Christian background, but genuine and sincere, and he was losing his way. And my talk apparently helped him to sort himself out and get on the right track, and he ends up as chief resident at Chicago, best school in the country. And so he was on the committee to choose the, the speaker by default. And I got nothing proud of. It was basically they all with one accord began to make excuse. So I was just the last man left standing. But obviously God was involved in that. And uh, when I went there, uh, they called me and said, uh, we've booked you into a nice hotel. And I said, well, you can unbook. Uh, in Chicago, I stay in South Side or West Side. And the secretary said, but that's where they kill people. I said, I know, but a friend of mine runs Lawndale Clinic and has done that for years. And it's far more interesting than anywhere else in Chicago. And he'll look after me and get me where you want me. She said, you're crazy, but so be it. And then they're very proud of the university. They said, is there anyone you want to meet? And I said, I would like to meet Robert Fogel. Now, if any of you have got somebody in the business world and you want to get under their skin a little bit, Robert Fogel's your guy. Uh, he's dead now. He's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, died a couple of years ago. But she said, yeah, we can arrange that. So I went to see him. And I wanted to talk to him about a book that someone had sent me called The Fourth Great Awakening. And I said, what have your, your fellow Nobel laureates made of this book? And he said, they won't engage. You're one of the first people to come and talk to me about it. And I said, why did you write it? And he said, uh, well, basically, I'm Jewish. I'm a secular Jew, born and brought up in New York and lived my life in Chicago. You can't get much more secular than that. But he said, I did one very un-Jewish thing. I married a black Episcopalian lady. And it had been a love match. The result was that she had died and he missed her. And when she'd gone, he realized that she was responsible for the fact that he was proud of his children, who hadn't followed his route, but were doing good things. You know, they wanted to serve to do what was good. Um, so uh, he said, I wrote the book to clarify my feelings because I was looking at my students in the world's most famous department of economics and I didn't trust them. 
And I thought the economy is going to be in trouble because these guys are going to go from us to run the world's economy and they're not trustworthy. And that's what took him to his wife and virtue. In the middle of the book, he gives a list of, he says, the limiting factor for the Western world is going to be trust. Who you trust is the most important network you build. There's nothing close to it. Augustine College, which I run now, builds trust networks. Asked, we, we've had 250 students in 20 years. I know where 90% of them are. There are two of them in the audience here who've come from Vancouver. Uh, three of them, sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> can't even keep up with the students. Uh, and there are parents who come to our summer program. It's like that. I, we, I take no responsibility. The five of us, six of us who started, we had no idea that it would work the way it has. But they keep in touch with one another. One of them, we ha and we've had 40-year-olds come and take the course. We designed it as a bridge between home and Christian schools and university to prepare for what Jordan Peterson has been describing, uh, basically to get them not to go to the arts faculty, uh, get a job, much better. But many of them go. We've got our first professor out of the system, now a professor of radiotherapy in Queen's University, Kingston, and there are many more on the way. It's been incredibly successful. The students who take it do not lose their faith. One of them went from us to McMaster in the pre-med and stopped the prof in the first PowerPoint. The first lecture in pre-med was biopsychosocial medicine. Up went the title, click, there are no absolutes. Nathan's hand went up immediately. You don't expect that in first year. The guy looked up and said, do you have a question? He said, no, sir, but yes, sir. Is that sentence internally consistent? <laughs> the, the, the whole audience collapsed into laughter. Not the whole, half the audience. Half of them didn't know what was going on because they're not logical at all. The guy was smart. He knows when a, when a student ups, upstages you, just climb down graciously as quickly as you can. That's the only thing you can do. And so he said, ah, I acknowledge the problem. I must have been asleep when I made that PowerPoint. I will correct it. And uh, anyway, uh, then afterwards, of course, lots of discussion about what was going on. I can't resist telling you the, the next bit of the story because it's just lovely. It's such a feminist school that the guys in that program have to show that they can cross the gender barrier by making a joint presentation with a girl. So, amazingly, Nathan didn't have to find a girl. She came to him, a Muslim girl. And she came to him and said, will you do your presentation with me? And he said, sure, why? She said, I watched you. I love your courtesy. And can we do it on some aspect of sexuality? It's not bad for a Muslim girl, is it? <laughs> and he said, sure. He said, would you do it on this paper? And I'd introduce him to Reichardt's analysis of the, the economic analysis of the pill, the first one that I know of. It's rigorous. And uh, it shows that the net effect of the contraceptive pill is to take money from women and children and give it to men. That's not exactly what the feminists wanted. And uh, so they worked it up. And of course, when it came to the time to make the presentations, lots of profs functioning, they went to see who they had to make their presentation to. And of course, it was the guy that Nathan had upstaged on day one. He said to the girl, this is not going to be good. She said, I don't care. I've enjoyed this. He was a good guy, actually. He gave maximum marks. He said, you deserve it for courage alone. And you did it excellently. That's the sort of student we, I could keep you for the next little while with stories like that. Uh, when you teach students how to recognize when an argument is true and when it's false, you've done them a wonderfully good turn. We don't even teach classical lo and logic in the university anymore. It's all mathematical logic, not the same thing. So that tacit knowledge is important. Re realizing the world can only be properly understood from that point of view. Now, I haven't got to what I wanted to do about the Jewish thing, and I left you with that, that biblical thing. How many of you have solved it overnight? No, nobody knows what but if not means. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Was that the problem I left you with? It was one of those. Anyway, biblical literacy is important because it gives meaning to life. Uh, continuing that discussion with Robert Fogel, he didn't know the heart of Judaism, which is Deuteronomy 6. It's a commencement address, Deuteronomy, the best the world has ever heard. And Moses reminds them they had an experience of God that overwhelmed them, but it didn't make them good. While Moses was still up the mountain, they broke the first three commandments in order. It's not a good start. 
And God says, I heard what they said. Oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law that it may go well with them and their children forever. The law is not an imposition. The law is a gift. It is the framework within which freedom can happen. No law, it's anarchy. That's where we're at intellectually at the moment. We're living in anarchy. We don't need to. Our children don't need to. We can teach them. And the bottom line is amazing. I think this is what I asked you to complete. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Right. What comes next? Somebody said, and your neighbor as yourself. That's wrong. That's from Leviticus 19. Jesus normally quotes Deuteronomy, but not that time. Deuteronomy is much better. These things shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. When you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. Not in church or in the synagogue, but in everyday life. The dining room table is the essence of a family. But it has a function, and it's a male function, because children are born with hypocrisy detectors. If, if dad says going to church is important and he doesn't go, they don't believe you. There's plenty of sociological data showing that if mom takes you to church, it has no predictive value for you going to church. But if you go as a family, you will go too at some point, in most cases. And Moses actually goes on a little further. About verse 22, he says, When your son asks you why we behave in the way we do, tell him the story. Not give him a lecture. Tell him the story. We were slaves in Egypt. God rescued us, brought us through the desert into the promised land. Don't you think we should try to obey a God like that? And up to the age of seven, they're honest. They'll say yes. By seven or eight, they've been watching you and they learn to rationalize their desires. And it's game over for a while. But if they know all the stories of the Bible, which is what a Jewish father is supposed to do, they have, in fact, a moral reference bank buried in narrative. And children have a requirement for this. Uh, I love watching this. I'm a pediatrician. Everywhere I've been in the world, and I've been to about 80 countries so far, children need a repeated story that's word perfect. They do, don't they? Uh, we, we have 22 grandchildren, and uh, we have a, a shelf for the young ones. But here's the question. What is the difference between the response of an eight-year-old and the response of an under seven, or under five, to the question, would you like a story? While you're thinking about it, I'll tell you my answer, watch your faces, and I'll know whether you read to children. The seven-year-old will go to her bedroom and bring you the book she's in the middle of and milk you for as many chapters as you will read. The under fives go to their shelf and bring a favorite book. Smartly, they usually take it to my wife because I'm not a reliable reader. They come to me and I get bored very easily, and I've read this book before. I try and shorten it. <laughs> Most of you do read to children. That's good. What on earth is going on? Little guy has brought me a book he knows every word of. As one of them said, Grandad, have you forgotten how to read? No. <laughs> but what's going on? And it's true everywhere. It's hardwired. A lot is hardwired. I collect the first philosophical statement my grandchildren make. My favorite one, of course, is not fair. And they say that before they can make a sentence. So they have a concept of justice. I mean, even I might be able to write a book about not fair. Jordan Peterson would probably write two books about not fair. I don't know. Uh, I'm too lazy. They're philosophers. They're hardwired philosophers, and we don't build on that foundation. Now, the nature of the story matters. If you grow up on Jewish stories, you end up with Jewish ethics. If you grow up on the Christian stories, you end up with Judeo-Christian ethics, which adds to justice, compassion. If you grow up with pagan stories, which I know a lot about, basically almost all of them have a little animal beating a big animal by trickery. A con man is a hero in Nigeria. And he comes all the way through Africa down to uh, Jamaica, where I lived for seven years for the Anansi stories, and back up into the States. That's the dominant story. If, the, if it's the Quran, you get Muslim ethics, which don't put loyalty above truth. Isn't it amazing? Just the reordering of truth and loyalty changes the whole society. Only two societies in the world put truth above loyalty, and then only at their best, Jews and Christians. 
Muslims invariably put loyalty above truth. But you see what happens. In a loyalty society, you get your job by who you know. In a truth society, you get your job by what you know. Which one wins? We do. The arts faculty have lost that completely. But it's still there in science to a considerable degree. We can still win this battle. I've got to stop there. I could go on for another hour, but thank you for listening.